Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this sermon. You can find all our sermons at our website, holycommunion.net. In the name of the one who was and is and is to come. Amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite church buildings in the world long has been Grace Cathedral, which watches at the top of Knob Hill like a great sentinel over San Francisco. And there's a lot I love about Grace, but what I love most is probably how it is a mix of ancient and modern. Grace Cathedral is patterned after a number of great cathedrals in France and Spain and England looks like a medieval Gothic church in many ways. But it was constructed in the 1920s out of poured concrete and steel. Unlike Holy Communion, the pulpit at Grace is over to the right. And all sorts of great preachers from Martin Luther King to Jane Goodall, the primatologist, to Desmond Tutu have preached sermons at Grace Cathedral. The lectern is over here on the left-hand side, uh, and that's where the lectors read scripture, just like Joe did from our lectern. Grace Cathedral's lectern, frankly, is bigger than our pulpit, rightly so for such a large building, but carved into the face in giant modern block Greek letters are the words N-Arche, Enarche, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis reads in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures. In the beginning was the word, begins John's gospel. I'm belaboring this word today because I'm honestly a little bit frustrated with our translation that's in your bulletin of Mark's gospel. I usually like the Common English Bible. I like the contemporary plain-spoken renditions that it gives to the ancient texts. But in today's reading, the translators made a strange decision. In the 13th chapter of Mark, they put a phrase in Jesus' mouth that isn't there in the original Greek. So if you have a pen, or if there's a pencil in the pew, one of those little golf pencils, uh, take it out. Take out the bulletins, open up to the gospel, and cross out the last five words in the gospel. I know it's the Bible, it feels weird, you're allowed, it's okay. Cross them out. You're crossing out the words, sufferings associated with the end. Sufferings associated with the end. We're editing today. In their place, write the more literal translation. Just one word, birth pangs. Birth pangs. And now Jesus reads very differently in that verse. See, his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, have come to him. They're sitting up there on the Mount of Olives, and they're overwhelmed after hearing him talking about the destruction of the temple. They ask, Jesus, what will be the sign that show the end is coming? And Jesus talks about painful signs, about wars, famines, difficult stuff. 
But Jesus pointedly in that verse doesn't use the word end. He says rather, arche. The signs are a beginning. These are the birth pangs. The end isn't coming. Something new is beginning. And Jesus' followers throughout the ages, like the disciples who sat with their Savior there on the Mount of Olives, have been tempted to believe they were living through the end times. In some ways, Jesus' followers were. Jesus would be proved correct. By the time Mark's gospel was circulating, the Roman army would have toppled that seemingly untoppable temple of Herod. Jerusalem would fall. Augustine of Hippo, a few hundred years later, interpreted Jesus' words to the fall of the Roman provinces to barbarians. Martin Luther used Jesus' words to talk about the toppling of the institutional church. The destruction of the temple had meaning in the Reformation. A couple of weeks ago, well, when I was in college in San Diego, there was a famous megachurch preacher, former NFL player, who and this was the Bush era, was convinced that Colin Powell was the Antichrist, talked about in Revelation. A couple of weeks ago, that same pastor called the general distinguished and trailblazing. Human history, Christian history, is full of folks who stood on mountaintops convinced that the end was coming, only to have the sun rise the next morning. So it's tempting today to sit like Peter, James, John, Andrew, look out over our troubled world and think we've reached the end. The news from Glasgow is that the climate deal was reached, but it won't be enough to stave off catastrophic global warming. There are already more fires and superstorms. The pandemic continues. Food pantries across America have more demand than ever before. The news these days is full of awful signs. It would be easy to fill out Jesus' list and say, yep, we have reached the end. But that isn't what Jesus says, at least not in our corrected version. Jesus says these signs are the birth pang. Yes, they're painful. Yes, they're difficult. But this isn't an end. It's a beginning. Sometimes these verses in Mark are called the little apocalypse. Technically, that's because of Revelation, which is the big whole book of apocalypse, right? But I like this idea of a little apocalypse. Jesus saw the pain. And Jesus didn't hide from the difficulty. Jesus didn't sugarcoat Great religious teachers don't tend to sugarcoat. Their teaching wouldn't hold up to the honest facts of life. Throughout history, the human race has survived all sorts of little apocalypses. We've made our collective way through the ends of all sorts of ages. We don't always agree on the signs of the time, though, do we? We don't always agree on history. There's a huge fight going on in school board meetings across our country right now over history. Using the misnomer of critical race theory, parents who have been whipped into a frenzy are storming educational leadership meetings. What do we teach our children about race? What do we teach children about the history of slavery, of Jim Crow, of lynching? 
As some of you may be gearing up for family conversations like this around the Thanksgiving table. You may be stealing yourselves for conversations with family members who see differently than you, who you might have muted on Facebook. <laughs> the human rights attorney Brian Stevenson was recently interviewed on Krista Tippett, at her show on NPR on Being. And Stevenson is the founder of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. You might know it by another name down there in Montgomery, Alabama. It's often called the Lynching Museum. And Stevenson believes that we have to tell our whole story. We have to tell the story of terror faced by black Americans through slavery, lynching, segregation, Jim Crow. You have to tell these stories in order to understand why still today black people face violence at the hands of police and inequity in the so-called justice system. The museum is just one facet of the wider Equal Justice Initiative, which provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons, most of them people of color. And Stevenson has been rightly celebrated for his work and for his book, Just Mercy. So you might expect that Stevenson had a word or two to say about why it's important to teach history, why it's important to teach the history of racism in our schools. He, he did, but that's not where he spent most of his time. Instead, in the interview, he talked about hope, about the power of hope. He told the story of his great-grandfather, who Stevenson has learned grew up enslaved and while he was enslaved taught himself to read as Stevenson told the story of his own grandmother who used to talk about her father used to talk about how other formerly enslaved people would come over to their house in the evenings and her father would read them the newspaper Stevenson said it took a long time for him to realize how much hope it took for his great-grandfather to decide in the 1850s in Virginia, before it was at all clear that slavery was going to end, to decide, I better learn to read. When freedom comes, I'm going to need to know how. So, if a family member or a neighbor or a co-worker comes to you to talk about critical race theory, anything else really in that topic of things we're so divided about, if, if what they want to talk about is history and whether racism was all that bad or whether we live in a racist country today, maybe change the time frame. I've found as a preacher, scolding doesn't work too well. Scolding doesn't work too well. Just reciting the partisan talking points that we all are intaking all the time right now, it doesn't work too well. So what if we started not by disputing what happened in the past, not by debating partisan viewpoints about current events? What if we asked together, what do we hope for the future? 
Do we hope for a country that is more equitable? Can we dare to hope for a world where the kids of the U-City School District, the kids in the Normandy School District, and the kids in the Clayton School District all have the same access to great resources and to top-notch teachers? Can we imagine a city where our poorest residents don't live with toxic black mold, where basements don't flood with raw sewage every time it rains, where kids don't develop asthma at higher rates in certain zip codes? What if we started installing solar panels on the poorest homes in St. Louis to help lower electric bills? I know many of us are friends, neighbors, and even family with congregants at Central Reform Congregation. The rabbis this week had to send out a letter about a mentally unwell man who is now in custody after making threats against the synagogue. Can we dare to hope for a world where our Jewish neighbors don't face threats of violence? A world where anti-Semitism is rightly condemned from every pulpit and at every dinner table? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, right, Mike, good luck. Look, I know. We live in days that are pretty soaked with bad news. We live in times that are fiercely divided. We can all list signs that our world is ending. We can all recite the litany of all that is wrong in our world with our neighbor, with those in the other political party. But until we decide to stop seeing this moment as the end of history, until we start asking what new world would we like to see be born, we're stuck in the apocalypse. You get to choose. You can live like these are the end times. Or you can live like this is the beginning. I can tell you your prayer life and your sense of hope will be stronger if you choose the beginning. In 1906, a terrible earthquake rocked San Francisco. After the earthquake came a fire which burned much of the city, including Grace Cathedral. It took a while for the congregation to regroup. But they set out when they did to birth one of the late nation's largest cathedrals. They didn't decide just to rebuild the destroyed church. They built something bigger, something new, using modern concrete and steel to ensure that future earthquakes wouldn't threaten the structure. From 1914, with pauses for the Great Depression and the Second World War, the cathedral was under construction, all the way to 1964. It wasn't just the dream and the work of one generation. It took hundreds of Christians over time working until the towers looked out over the bay. I love that they chose to carve into the stand from which they read scripture, en arche, in the beginning, as if to remind themselves. We can read these signs and see doom, or we can ask, what is trying to be born? Amen.